want to tell you about uh, something that was uh, very embarrassing that happened to me, uh, an experience that uh, uh, I, I was really, uh, yeah, quite upset about, quite embarrassed about with one of my good friends. Uh, the friend was visiting uh, our house and we were sitting uh, in the evening after a nice meal and uh, if you imagine Denise and I were sitting on the sofa and opposite us were sitting uh, our, our good friend and, and his wife uh, and so they're, they're facing us. They're also facing the piece of art that was on the wall behind us above our head if you imagine that. Uh, and we were chatting away, and I noticed uh, my friend, who is, uh, I have to say, uh, now a PhD in fine art, was was looking at the the piece of art behind us really intently. Uh, here it is. Uh, it's a print. It's not an original. Oh, she wasn't original. That would be worth a fortune. Uh, but he's looking at it, and. I'm not sure if it was actually this one, but if not, it's very similar to this one. It's nice, isn't it? Um, what our friend noticed, as some of you have, may have noticed, and what you will have noticed if you've looked ahead in the programme a bit, is it's upside down. And we'd had it for a year, and we'd been walking past it. You see, there's kids on the back row doing exactly what we did when he said to us, that's upside down. We went like that. Uh, we've been looking at it for more than a year and we'd not realised that it was just hanging there upside down. Well, my name is Ian and I'm one of the leaders here at Rotherham Evangelical Church and I have the privilege of stepping us through this next chapter in the book of Matthew. It's a passage that is uh, filled with what might be some of Jesus's strongest and most direct condemnations as well as one of his most heartfelt pleas and we're going to look at this under uh, three headings uh, you'll see them there priests and ambassadors upside down religion hence the thing with the picture and right way up relationship so priests and ambassadors upside down religion and right way up relationship. Uh, we'll be jumping backwards and forwards a bit in this passage, so you, you will want to keep your Bible open near you. You'll find that helpful. Uh, and yeah, as Claire said, just encourage you to take notes and sure, write down, a, scribble down a question, grab me afterwards, ask me a question. We always like that. Um, first of all then, Priests and ambassadors. Two days before this passage, Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem to the adoration of the crowds. They're hailing him as the king. They think he's going to be the one who's going to kick those nasty Romans out. And, and for the last two days, he's been verbally tussling with Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, Herodians, you name them, they have been arguing with Jesus. They want him off the scene. They are planning to have him killed. They've been challenging. 
asking him questions, seeking to discredit him. Even earlier this day, they have been having a pop at him. And in, just to give you the idea here in chapter 23, Jesus is in the temple. He's speaking to the crowds. He's speaking to the crowds for the last time before his arrest. This will be his last public speech before his execution. And he's going to take that opportunity to warn the crowd and warn the disciples. Because the disciples are there. They're probably blown away by all this stuff that's happening. They're like, wow, I'm talking about living in jeopardy. I've got Jesus, the guy who I'm following. I've got the, you know, going head to head with the, the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees are there. Also, one of the, the, the teachers of the law, they're a kind of a subgroup of the Pharisees. In your Bible, it might say scribes instead of teachers of the law. Um, whatever they're called, they're looking to get rid of Jesus. They're, they're out to get him. They're worried about what the crowd will, will think of Jesus. And if the crowd starts following Jesus, what are the crowd going to think of them? Will they reject the Pharisees and start instead following this, this wild preacher from Galilee? And for the first time, Jesus goes onto a direct offensive against these teachers of the law he's not preaching in parables now he's not skipping around the daisies he's hinted at it before but now it's direct in your face criticism of these religious leaders so what does he say what does he say about it verse 2 this is, this is where Jesus begins his, let's call it, character assassination. He states that the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. It's not, a, it's not a physical, actual seat particularly. He's simply saying that the religious leaders have put themselves in the position of authority where they're interpreting the law that Moses gave and they're also, as it happens, adding to it, adding traditions to it. Moses was the one who really first held that role and, you know, was the man for it. So everyone listening to this would understand what Jesus was saying. They're the ones who are interpreting the rules. That's what the, they're the ones who are setting the rules and the Pharisees were famous for that. But Jesus goes on, look, they do not practice what they preach. Their rulings make the lives of the people tougher than are really required by the law. Much tougher. They make the, the burden heavier. But not only do they make the burden heavier, they fail to help the people lift that burden. Even worse, they don't follow the same rules. They don't carry that same burden. And we've seen, even this week, in our own politics, the impact of rule setters who do not follow their own rules. We instinctively understand that this is wrong. Leaders are understandably held to a higher standard, yet despite this, Jesus still says, but you should obey the, the rules. You should follow what the religious leaders say, as long as they are rules that are going to honour God, 
but don't follow their example. Don't follow what the Pharisees do. Jesus then goes on. He condemns, verse 5, he condemns how these leaders love to look pious, noble and pious in front of others. They follow religious laws and traditions, but do so in such a way that the people think, oh, wow, you're so, you're so holy, you're so, you're so wonderful. Uh, so the, 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 these religious leaders would uh, wear tassels on the bottom corners of their robes. They weren't particularly hippies. Uh, that's just commanded in uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 15, something that, that uh, Jewish people should do in order to remind themselves about uh, stuff that's been happening in the Old Testament. But these guys are going to make them really long, really wide. Uh, imagine you've been invited to a a Western-themed fancy dress party. Uh, instead of turning up as a quick and simple Clint Eastwood impersonation, someone is turning up with their own personal wagon train that they've got organised. Here, look at this. What a great cowboy I am, right? That's the idea. By the way, if you want to know how to achieve Cleese Eastwood impersonation, see me afterwards. I will answer that question if you ask me a question about the sermon. Um, but also, uh, the, these, uh, these religious leaders were wearing, I think I'm saying this right, phylacteries. These were things that were usually worn by uh, Jewish people at morning prayers. We've got a photo of this here, I think. Uh, we can see this in verse 5. Uh, they're the little boxes on the forehead and on the arms. Uh, they would contain four verses from the Old Testament were, that were particularly important. And so again, people were wearing these as a reminder to remind themselves about these four verses and, and what they meant. But now these guys, they had, theirs had to be ostentatious. They had to be, yeah, look at this. This is great. They're extra prominent in perhaps their size and their quality. Uh, they're not there as a reminder for, the, for these men, they're there to say, look everybody, I'm really, really holy. And everybody, we presume, is thinking, oh wow, you're so wonderful. Um, Jesus goes on and condemns them further, verses 6 and 7. He says the, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were self-important. They loved, they loved the best seats. They loved the best seats in the synagogue. They loved the best seats at the feast, so secular or, or religious environments. They wanted to be treated with deference. And they loved it. Jesus says you they loved it. It's easy to read sort of the passage to this point. And imagine the Pharisees and the teachers of the law as, as pantomime baddies. You know, they're walking on, everybody boo. They've got the long moustache that they're twirling as they, as they laugh e evilly. Um, despite what Jesus rightly condemns as their inconsistency, their ostentation, their, their love of preeminence, they were, they were 
generally well regarded by the people, by the crowds. They were leaders who, who were respected, who people looked to for, for leadership, especially given the, the situation where they were occupied by the Romans. Yeah, Jesus' judgment is forthright and deep. Remember this, here is the Son of God standing in the temple of God, giving the verdict of God against these supposed leaders of God's people. It's clear that these, these religious leaders have failed in many aspects of their role. Judgment will be poured out on them as the culmination of this, this broken temple system. How ironic is it that the, the new religious leaders of God's people are standing listening to this, the apostles. And surely they are taking careful note of how Jesus is describing, describing these people. And, and so I, I want to suggest to you that, that Matthew clearly intends this chapter to be applied as a warning to all religious leaders of God's people. Yes, to himself and his fellow apostles who were listening then, surely, but, but more so to the leaders of any church, starting with me, starting with the other elders and deacons here. At REC. We have to read this with some real soul searching as I have done this week. Is this me? Any Christian has to seriously think about the question, is this how my leaders are? The history of the church, even the very recent history of the church, has been marred by people who acted in, in some of these kind of ways. I also believe that Matthew wants to apply it further to all God's people. That all Christians should be reading this and asking themselves some questions. Let's remember that all Christians are priests and ambassadors of this new kingdom that Jesus has brought in. 1 Peter chapter 2, it's, we're told that all Christians are a royal priesthood part of whose role is declaring the praises of him who called you out of darkness the bible also tells us that all christians are ambassadors of this new kingdom 2 corinthians chapter 5 verse 20 we have been sent by the king to be his representatives where we live and work and study How does anybody think about priests or, or an ambassador who is inconsistent, ostentatious, and loves their own prestige? What would it say about the, the, a country if we saw an ambassador of that country behaving in that way? If we are all priests and ambassadors of King Jesus, then I think Matthew writes this chapter in part as a mirror where we should first evaluate our own Christian lives. So I have to ask myself, how am I doing? Here are some questions I've been trying to consider based on, uh, based on an excellent book by uh, David Platt. Uh, I would encourage you to think about them too. 
do I practice what I preach? None of us are perfect. But am I conscious of that? And am I, and am I fighting to be moving along the right, load, right road in terms of that? Am I not content with the approval of God? The more I look for the approval of humans, the less I want the approval of God. My action should be the approval, should be for the approval of an audience of one, God. It's his opinions of my motives and actions that are the ones that matter. How do I want to be perceived by my friends, my family, my colleagues, neighbours, versus what I'm actually like? Is my social media profile, such as it is, uh, the same as the reality of who I am? Or do I want people to see this glowing example of who I am? Unfortunately, I have to put photos up so it doesn't work. Um, is my pride overriding the humility that's demanded of Christians? Do I assert my superiority over others? Listen, everybody is good at something. Right? As my PE teacher told me, everybody is good at something. How do I act in those areas towards others? Do I act superior? Well, our second heading, upside down religion. Jesus stops talking over the heads of the religious leaders and instead uh, directly addresses them. Verses 13 to 32, your religion, he says, is upside down. And again, we should be considering our own lives in light of this. Uh, Now, you'll see the word woe there a lot. This does not mean woe, as in stop. It does not mean woe, as in that's amazing. The word is, comes from the, the Old Testament where God's messengers would either pronounce God's blessings on people or woes. The opposite of saying blessed are you would be to say woe to you. But the, the idea carries both an element of condemnation but also lamentation. It shouldn't be this way. Yes, Jesus is strongly condemning the religious leaders, that's clear, but he wishes it wasn't that way. He wishes it wasn't like that. He wishes that they were leading the people of God with with justice and mercy, with compassion, with sacrifice, the ways in which Jesus himself was a leader. And we don't have the time to dig into each one of these uh, seven ones but let's just uh touch on on them briefly as we go uh uh, you'll notice it says the word you hypocrites a lot there again there's a bit of nuance here um when jesus is saying hypocrite not how we would perhaps quite normally think of the word here in the west one writer points out that the leaders have first fooled themselves and then others as a result of it. So they're not play-acting here. They're sincere in what they're doing, but they're sincerely wrong in what they're doing, and they they are hypocritical from what the law teaches. 
Well, the first two woes. Jesus condemns them for doing more harm than good. Verses 13 and 15. Their upside-down religion is based on their actions. The belief that they can please God by doing things, really working hard at doing things they believe God will be happy with. The law that's been laid out for them in, the, in what is the Old Testament. And as teachers of Israel, that's what they taught to others. And in doing so, Jesus says, they not only did not achieve salvation themselves, but they kept other people from salvation. And when they made new converts, they were making converts who were even more like the Pharisees than the Pharisees themselves. Their faith in God and their teaching to the people was not based on what, on what we call the gospel, the good news. What they taught to others was not based on the gospel. What they tried to save others with was not the gospel. Jesus is showing once again. He knows the actions and the heart and the motive of the Pharisees. He knows that they do not do things that are pleasing to God. And even on the outside, they're doing something right. Their hearts are self-centered and full of pride. This is true for them because they are human. The only hope the Pharisees have, the only hope that we have is to trust in Jesus. Even though we, like they, are enemies of the Son of of God, he has died for our sins. He has died to pay the price for the, for the very condemnation he's pouring out on them. If they would trust him, then they would be forgiven of this. How, how ironic. If we will trust him, we will be forgiven of the things that are true of us that are not pleasing to God. Our only hope then, their only hope, is to put our faith in the death of Jesus, to turn away from our self-centered attitudes and to do our best to follow him. And we can trust this, we can trust Jesus, we can trust this good news because of what he has done, because he's died in our place. And he's risen from the dead to rule this kingdom, this kingdom of which he's now made his followers priests and ambassadors. If the Pharisees do not turn away, if they do not believe this gospel and follow King Jesus, if we do not do that, then what we think of as, as religion, perhaps, what the Pharisees might think of as religion, Perhaps what we tell others about is religion. Perhaps what we try to convert others to as religion will not save anyone, least of all us. It will only condemn us to hell. It is faith in Jesus and following him that will save us. In the third row, 
Jesus condemns the, the religious leaders for the way in which they use semantics. This is quite a long section where he's talking about the, uh, the, the um, swearing by uh, the gold and the temple and all that stuff. Um, they're using semantics and nuances to try and avoid the displeasure of God, trying to wriggle their way through. Uh, Jesus has said before, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. He reiterates the principle here. The Pharisees are trying to figure out, well, how close can I get to offending God without actually offending God? And, and they're then teaching that to people. Uh, when you're going to school in the morning or you're going to work, are you thinking, boy, I feel so self-condemned here, are you, are you thinking, how close can I arrive to the start of class without getting detention? Or are you thinking, how can I arrive in plenty of time so as to be ready to learn and to be respectful of my teachers or my work colleagues? If I'm going to work. Our, heart attitude, our heart attitudes are too often, how close can I get to breaking the rule without actually breaking the rule? As opposed to, how can I stay, uh, how can I follow this rule in a way that is good and helpful and pleasing, the way in which the rule was designed? This is what Jesus is accusing the leaders of God's people of being like. In the next woe, Jesus condemns the religious leaders for what writer calls their inability to see the wood for the trees. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees are good at following and promoting and teaching the, the minutiae, the, the tiny details of the law, whilst ignoring the more fundamental parts. Now, to be clear, uh, Jesus is not saying that it's unimportant to follow the smaller parts of the law, the, the details that are pleasing to God. But what he's saying, sir, that to do so whilst ignoring the fundamental principles like justice, mercy, love, compassion, that is, that is fundamentally wrong. And so, so Jesus illustrates this, pointing out the, the Pharisees' Uh, enthusiasm for tithing at one-tenth of their spices, these spices which have negligible nutritional value. I've got, a, I've got some of these plants in my garden. I, I can't imagine sitting there counting out leaves of mint. You know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one for the church. One, two, three, four, whilst ignoring injustice, whilst ignoring the love that we should be expressing. Jesus also uses what, in, in the original uh, language, uh, would have been uh, a play on words, verse 24 there. Um, so I thought I would try and, and uh, steal it slightly. Um, the, the Pharisees, uh, so f uh, flies, insects were unclean. And so the Pharisees would try and strain out of a drink or, let's imagine, soup, uh, a fly that was in there. 
And yet, Jesus says, you're ignoring the big stuff. He says, it's like you're straining a fly out of your soup while you're leaving a camel in your soup. The camel is the biggest of the unclean animals that was in Palestine at the time. Uh, Hence my uh, lame dad joke. Uh, Waiter, there is a camel in my soup. As opposed to waiter, waiter, there is a fly in my soup. Some of you will know the punchline to that joke. Um, They're they're focusing on the details instead of the, the big, obvious stuff in front of them. They can't see the wood for the trees. Well, Jesus goes on, uh, the fifth and sixth woes there. Jesus pr- pronounces uh, uh, the, his woe on the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law for their um, desire to appear holy and righteous on the outside, whilst inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 25. They're full of, verse 27, the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Verse 28, full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Throughout the New Testament, God teaches us that that pleasing him does not depend on outward appearances, but on our heart attitudes, on, on the reason why we do things, not just on good things. It is good, it is a good thing to donate food to a food bank. But if we're doing that just to look good to our family and friends, rather than doing it out of compassion and a desire to please God, it's the same act, but it's very different. Now, all of our motives are mixed. None of of our motives are 100% pure. You know, don't, don't worry about if you're going to the food bank, am I doing this, am I doing this just to look good? Am I really just doing this to good luck or am I trying to please God? I mean, which is it? How do I know? Don't worry. Put the food in the food bank. But, but, but yeah, we, sometimes we, we can be really conscious that we are doing things just out of pride to look good. The seventh word is a bit different in some ways in that it's both looking backwards and forwards. It's looking backwards because uh, when Jesus is condemning the Pharisees, he says... You're the descendants of the ones who killed God's prophets, and you're just the same as they are. He's saying you, you would claim that, that you wouldn't have killed and persecuted God's messengers. Jesus has said, yes, you would. And in one level, we know this because we know that what's happened to John the Baptist recently. Well, there was the, Rome, the Herodians that killed him. <laughs> and, and Jesus then looks forward And then says, you know how I'm going to tell you it's true? Because you're going to do it again. You're going to do it again to the people I send. To the people I send when after my resurrection to teach you. Bear in mind, some of them are also listening to this. You're going to flog and kill them. Just as you would have done with the other prophets. And this generation, he says, is going to be the culmination of the people of Israel's rejection of God. And judgment on them will be more severe because of that. The reference to uh, Abel and Zechariah there that that Jesus has has made um, down in verse uh, 35 
Uh, in the Hebrew Bible at the time, if you were reading it, the books are not in the same order as they are for us. So the first prophet, the first of God's messengers, of his righteous ones who died is Abel. And the last one is a prophet called Zechariah. And so Jesus is saying from, from beginning to end, all these people who have died, all these righteous ones you have killed, you would have done the same. These woes characterise the religion of the Pharisees and scribes based on outward appearance, greed, thoughtless rule following, self-indulgence, enmity with the teachers of God's truth. This is a religion of which the world would approve. This is the kind of religion that characterises other religions that, that still many people follow today. However, it is upside down. So some more questions from David Platt. I feel I have to ask myself. Am I hindering people's salvation? Either in my message or my practice? Do I know what the good news about Jesus is? However, I might express that differently, different words. Am I more concerned with, with following uh, the tiny details? The small commands, rather than thinking about the big stuff. Am I more concerned with looking outwardly like I'm a, a holy kind of person, instead of inward holiness? Is my life being progressively changed so that I want the things of Christ more than I want the things of the world? Well, and in one sense, we've talked about this already, but what's the alternative? What is the alternative? If what the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were living and teaching is upside down religion, what is right way up religion? When we realise that the picture of perhaps something that we thought of as religion is wrong way up, what's the alternative? How do we turn that the right way up do we just do the opposite do we just do the the other things that they're doing i think that's the wrong question if by religion we mean what do i have to do what what observances what rules do i have to follow to please god because my heart is sinful even on my best days my, my motives are mixed I'm not being negative when I say that. I'm not being putting myself down. I'm just being truthful with you. I don't know that there's any ever been a 24-hour period where everything I did would have been pleasing to God. Certainly, certainly not that everything I thought would have been pleasing to God. The amazing grace of God is that I don't have to. I do not have to. Our third point then, right way up relationship. Instead of an upside down or right way up religion, what we need, what is offered to us by God, is what Jesus has bought for us with his blood, which is a right way up religion. 
As a preacher said recently, the answer to our inconsistency is not consistency, it is humility. It is grace that saves us. Unearned, unmerited forgiveness. It is God saying to us, as he does in Matthew chapter 5, you are blessed. As opposed to saying to us, as he say, as opposed to saying to us what he's saying to the, the Pharisees, woe to you. And the difference is because of his grace, something that we didn't earn in any way. Our faith in the person of Jesus and what he has done when he died for us on the cross. Our desire to, to imperfectly, but, but hopefully sincerely, follow Jesus is what will make us acceptable to God. Nothing else. From that then will come good works. From that then will come fruit. But that isn't what makes us acceptable. It is Jesus who reconciles this relationship between humans and their creator. And, and that tension, this seems to have that tension between a just punishment for our sins that he's going to pay, that Jesus is going to pay, and the compassionate mercy that we so desperately need in order to be forgiven, the tension of those two things is perfectly put together in Jesus and held together in Jesus. Each woe that Jesus pronounces is filled not only with judgment, but also compassionate lamentation. Look, look down there in verse 37. We can see something of the heart of God illustrated here as Jesus condemns Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you know, representing the people of God. Even as he expresses his desire to bring his people together and protect them. To watch over them. That repetition of the word Jerusalem emphasises the emotions that Jesus is expressing. I can imagine my parents not just saying, and boy, I heard this a lot, not just saying, oh, Ian, but, oh, Ian, Ian. Yeah, you see the difference, the, 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 the care, the compassion that comes through that? And that is what Jesus is like. Perfect judgment and perfect compassion. Together, united perfectly in one person. But perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian. And this passage is ringing bells with you. Because you look around and you might see in us, you probably do see in us, something that looks a bit like these Pharisees. That it looks a bit like the, be the behaviour that Jesus is condemning. I'm not sure I disagree with you. But please, remember, don't aim to be like us. Yeah? Jesus is warning to the crowd, don't be like them. Be like Jesus. The aim is to be like Jesus. As humans, we often fail. The best of humans... Is at best only human. Jesus will not fail. 
Jesus says to the crowd, do not do what they do. And the follow-on from that is, do what he does. And as Christians, our only hope is in this relationship with Jesus. Because that hope is in a being who was both fully God and fully human. Jesus is the only one who has the authority to forgive our sins and the compassion to want to do so. The only one with the desire to die for us, his enemies, in order to then rise and make us brothers and sisters with him. To make us priests and ambassadors for him. That's a picture of grace. Which country would take its enemies, die for them, and then make them the ambassadors for that country. That's a picture of grace. This relationship, which, which is the Christian faith, is the one where humility is exalted above ostentation. This relationship is one where the, the quality of our Christian lives can be measured in our imperfect but sincere hearts instead of our desires to appear like noble, wonderful people. This relationship is one where all kinds of things that are pleasing to God matter, but where more importance is given to those things which represent the fundamental character of God. This relationship is one where Christians love God with all their heart, soul and mind, and they love their neighbours as themselves. Church leaders are to particularly pay attention to this passage. But it is important for all Christians to consider, for us to learn from the example of these first century religious leaders and to fight the fight of becoming more like Jesus. And we will never perfectly get that right. We will never perfectly get that right this side of heaven. However... Christian, fight that fight constantly. You are not yet the right way up, but you are no longer totally upside down. We must draw on all the resources that we have in God and in God the Father, in Jesus, the Holy Spirit, in the church he's made us a part of, in the Bible, in the opportunity to pray. We must draw on all those resources to help us move a bit more right way up. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, it can be hard to read a passage like this and get the balance right. To get the balance right between, on the one hand, not ignoring what you are saying and on the other hand, not being unreasonably condemned yes we are not perfect father help us to trust in you yes father too often our hearts are not in the wrong place help us to trust in your son and what he has done for us Yes, Father, we, we confess, we acknowledge that we, we do not do the things we should. 
But Father, help us to follow your Son. Lord, we pray that our lives would bring, our lives would generate good fruit that would be pleasing to you, but that that fruit would come from our relationship with your Son, Jesus, and not from anything else. Because if it comes from anything else, it will not be good fruit. Father, this can be hard. This can be a hard tension to understand. Help us to understand it and plant it deep inside us. This is the difference between relationship and religion. This is the difference between grace and mindless rule following. Lord, teach us through your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.